walk by faith and not by sight. The, the defining characteristic of the life of a believer is one who lives with a living faith in the living Son of God. And of course, there is a great reason that we have faith. It is not blind faith. It is faith in evidence. It is faith in proof. It is faith in the demonstration of God's power in our life and in the environment around us, which Scott read this morning as we read through the whole chapter of Acts chapter 5. What we did there was to make you aware of the flow of the context of what is taking place. And every church, I believe, has at its heart, every believer has a heart, a desire to grow, to grow in our walk and our relationship with God, a desire to know more of Him. One of the paradoxes of the Christian life is we know Him, and yet we want to know Him more. We want to pursue Him. We want to know more of His character, His personality, know more of His plan through history and His plan for the future. And so we want to grow in our knowledge. Just like the Apostle Paul said, I, that I may know Him and know Him completely. Willing to leave everything behind and aside that I may know Christ, the, the fellowship of His suffering, that I may know His power that works within me, His power that works in the world. And so we have a desire to grow. But there's another component to this. Churches grow. One of the measurements of church's growth are the number of people that come. And I believe that most churches have a desire to see more people become part of the church. Now, sometimes that desire is just rooted in we like a bigger crowd. We want to have more, more impact. Uh, and we do want to have more impact. What we want is uh, more people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We want more people being taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We want more people being freed from guilt, having their sins washed away, uh, being born into the family of God, having their eternity secure, and experiencing the power of God in this life now. That is a, a driving motivation. As a matter of fact, we always celebrate, and we should. This is the right thing to do. Jesus finished work. On the cross when he said, it is finished, he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to be the substitutionary atonement. He came to take our place and to satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God on the cross in order that grace might be given to us, in order that we might be cleansed, washed, and forgiven. And as we come to him in repentance and faith, as he saves us and regenerates us and makes us new, we celebrate his completed work. But as we saw at the beginning of Acts, that he has an ongoing work. His ongoing work, the work he began, he now continues through the church. And you remember the commission, of course, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Witnesses to the coming Messiah who came and who lived perfectly, who died, and then who was buried and who rose again and who lives today, still seeking, still saving the lost. Through the testimony now, the witnesses of His church. A great privilege, a great joy, a great responsibility. And we see an unprecedented time in history when the church was launched. Peter preached at Pentecost. Many wonderful signs and wonders, miracles that were taking place there as evidence of God moving and working. 3,000 were saved that first sermon there at Pentecost. And of course, in subsequent days, more and more and more, many signs and wonders were taking place. As a matter of fact, we had the healing of the lame man who was seated outside of the gate, beautiful. And it, it, that these things were happening, no one could possibly deny. And the, the church grew, 5,000 more men that day. 
And again, you add into that the women, the children, the families that were being impacted. And you see that even in our text that we read today, many more, many more were being saved. Now, what, is the, what are the characteristics that was taking place in that church that needs to be the characteristics of every healthy church that is growing? What are those things? And we've got five things that we're going to look at. The first one is just a review because I took a whole sermon on it last week when we told the story of Ananias and Sapphira, this couple who were, um, they were part of the church. There's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that they were not believers, that they had not made a profession of faith, that they were less than sincere in that, except for the fact of their sinfulness that we read in verses 1 through 11. And we see that representation of their sinfulness and how God dealt with it abruptly, how God dealt with it powerfully, how God dealt with it in such a way that the church was in awe and the city was in awe. There was no mistaking that purity matters. And so I want to kind of focus on this. The church grows. This church grew, the early church in Jerusalem, but every church can grow as it takes purity seriously. And this is point number one on your outline, and that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. As the church takes purity seriously, then that provides the background, the network, the the opportunity for the church to reach more people. And and there are a couple of very simple reasons for this. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon as an introduction, don't worry. But I do want you to know that the purity of, in the life of a believer verifies the reality of the gospel. What is the good news of the gospel? It is predicated on the bad news that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That men love darkness rather than light because they're deeds of evil. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. That we're all separated from God. And yet... The gospel is that God has made a way that we can come to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. As Peter said here, there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. We read that when we were in Acts chapter 4. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. And when we come to Him in repentance and faith, He washes us, He cleanses us. He calls us, He grants us repentance. He regenerates us, He makes us new. What we say here often is that we become something that we've never been before. So why do we live, or why would we want to live, or why would we have any tolerance for or acceptance of a lifestyle that represents the life before Christ as opposed to the transformed life after Christ. If we say the gospel transformed lives and yet we live like those who have never been transformed. I, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I won't turn you, I'm going to be talking about several passages of Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has been dealing with the church at Corinth, and there's all kind of stuff going on there. I would tell you, you wouldn't believe it, but you would. It's very clear in chapter 4, and then well, I'll go all the way back to chapter 1, at the second half of chapter 1, and the conflict, and the groups that were in there, and then there's immorality in the church, chapter 5, and chapter 6, they're suing one another, and there's all this stuff taking place, and Paul's talking about purity. And he gives this horrible list of sins, this, this things that we would say that encompasses everything from greed to sexual immorality, and everything in between. And he says, these have no part in the kingdom of God. And then he comes to this phrase, and such were some of you. Isn't that great? You used to be that, but you're that no more. You're a new creation. 
Old things pass away. All things become new. You used to have yourself as your God, or pleasure as your God, or fame, or riches, or the world, or whatever. You were worshiping something other than God, and then you met God. And you bowed the knee before Him and you surrendered and He made you into something you're not. And you used to be that. You are that no longer. And yet, Christians, you know that you're not immediately morally perfect and complete. There's this process of sanctifying. You have all of the Holy Spirit when you get saved that you're ever going to have and that you're ever going to need. You have all of Him that there is. And He begins this process of taking what you used to be and He immediately makes you into a new creation. And then He begins to change your mind. He begins to conform you to the image of His Son in preparation for what is next. It is is called the process of sanctification of becoming holy. So purity matters. And so churches that grow take purity seriously. Not legalism. That's a whole different thing. This is not how you gained favor with God. This is because you have received grace from God. You want to please Him in all that you do. So a church that grows, as we saw in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, is a church that takes purity seriously. Now, when, when they did, when God exercised His church discipline in that first church setting, took, it, it got everybody's attention. And in Acts chapter 5, picking up in verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico, or Solomon's porch, or Solomon's colonnade, that section of the temple. Now, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Purity matters. The testimony matters. The power of God on display matters. Now, The testimony of the signs and wonders took place to the extent that they even carried out sick people into the streets and they laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And people gathered them from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And I believe the focus of this and the testimony of this is the power of God on display. I want you to know that, that, that we need to get this. Uh, a couple of things about this really quick. This power was given specifically to the apostles. The 12 minus 1 plus 1 plus Paul. All right, And, and if that's confusing for you, I'd be glad to talk you through that. But there are the apostles that Jesus gave a d- divine anointing and a divine opportunity and expression to do miracles. Paul explains this when he's writing to the church at Corinth and he's telling them in his second letter to them about the miracles and signs that are wonders. He says, these are the signs of an apostle. These are miraculous works where God intervenes in history, does things outside of natural and physical law to put his power on display. Why? For specific purposes. To give credence to those who are doing them. Credentials. In that day, you had this teacher and that teacher and this rabbi and that rabbi and this, this group and this cult and this sect, S-E-C-T, and all of these different... Who, how do you know who's telling the truth? How do you know who to listen to? Well, the one that's come from God has got God's mark on him, God's imprimatur on him, and that imprimatur is miracles and signs 
and wonders. And we see that this is not a gift that continues through the life of the church. When you look at the epistles that are written to the churches in their instructions, there's nothing about that other than to point upon the reality of what happened at the beginning. Now they have the Scriptures. Now they have the written Word of God. And if you want to know who to listen to now, if you want to know who speaks for God now, you go to the Word of God that God supernaturally superintended for them to write down and to preserve for us. And we have this wonderful miracle, but we have the miracle of Scripture, not only in its collection, not only, but in its preservation. And it is the living Word of God. And so, so we have the power of God on display. Now, just a few things about this, about the power of God. That same God is our God. He is no less powerful today. Amen? He is still powerful. God is able to do anything and everything that He intends to do and that He wills to do. And that God works in us. And He works in us. God is still at work today. Just like the prophets used to say, God's arm is not shortened. God's eyes have not become blurry. God is not sleep, does not sleep and He does not slumber. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He's still at work. And lives are continually being transformed today. There are still people who are becoming new. Still people who are being born into the family of God. And we need to know and we need to experience God's power today. In, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, you know, um, I don't know how many of you know this. Hopefully most of you do. If you don't, I'm going to tell you, we got a new baby in our family. Uh, Chrissy and Brandon gave birth to their fourth, Bristol Marie Skelly. Uh, she was born this weekend, and she is beautiful, as one would expect. Uh, both baby and mother and father and siblings in do, are doing fine. Um, and so we've been greatly blessed. And it is such a, such a joy uh, for, to experience that and something like that. But as the baby is born, the baby gets to grow. And of course, now in, in families like theirs where they have four kids, you get the infant, and the infant's being cared for and nurtured in love. A little bit older, learning to talk like Levi does, and he can talk and interact and play games. And you got Micah, who's a little bit older, and Micah plays rougher and harder and talks a lot more. And he's an active, active kid it's moving right along in his stage of growth. And then you've got Blythe, who is the oldest and she is older and so she's been to school and is going to school and she's being equipped and so you got these different levels of maturity you can't talk to all of them exactly the same at their level they're, they're, and so as christians even though we get born into the family of god there's this process of growth that must take place the apostle paul had spent three years at the church at ephesus he had seen God save them. He had seen people on their face before God repenting and confessing, being made new. He had welcomed them into the body. He had taught them and nurtured them. He has now gone away and, and cannot come back at the moment that he's writing this letter. And yet he's praying for them and he's praying for some specific things for them. When you look at the book of Ephesians to the church of Ephesus, the whole first half of that book is simply stuff they ought to know. 
the blessings that they have, blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. He talks to them about their identity, how that they've been chosen before the foundation of the world, how that they are adopted as sons, how that they are indwelled and sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, how that they have been redeemed and washed, and how God moves and works by the counsel of His own goodwill for His glory. And when he gets to the end of that first chapter, he continues in chapter 2 and chapter 3, talking about the church. But he's praying for them specifically at the end of chapter 1. And listen to how he prays. He prays, uh, For this reason I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That, and here's what I pray, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The first thing I pray is that you will know Him more. That He will reveal Himself to you more. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. You need to know your hope. You need to know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And listen to verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to to the working of His great might. The same might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And He goes on to describe Christ's authority and power in His working now. I want you to get that. Here's what Paul's praying. There's power. There's power in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? There's power. There's power to save, power to call, power to cleanse, power to regenerate and to make new. There's power to live. There's power for you to be able to do the things that you cannot do. The call to a Christian life is the call to live purer than you are capable of living, but not purer than He is capable of living. I've often been asked, where's that verse that says God will never give you more than you can handle? And my response, Reader's Digest. God gives you more than you can handle every day. He just never gives you more than He can handle. I can't. He never said I could. He can. He always said He would. You understand the Christian life is a life lived in the power of God and we need to be transformed lives pursuing purity depending upon the Holy Spirit's now, these guys, the Holy Spirit's power was radically on display. Continuing with the account, the high priest, when these guys were preaching and, and, and these signs and wonders were being taken, the high priest was not happy with this. He rose up. Now, I don't know if this is Caiaphas or if this is Annas. I don't know if this was the, the, the former high priest or the high priest currently in power. It doesn't, both of them had the same title. But these are the rulers of the temple and they are surrounded by the group called the Sadducees, the Jewish religious sect that had responsibility for the functions of the temple. They oversaw the temple guard. They oversaw the priestly functions of the temple. Now, the Sadducees, let me just tell you a little bit about them. They didn't believe in the resurrec resurrection. The Sadducees were kind of the, the ultra-conservatives in some respects of their day. They believed that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were inspired. They believed in the Pentateuch the Torah, not the rest of the Bible. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. It's not mentioned in those books, so it must be something mankind came up with. 
They did not believe in angelic beings. I don't know how they excused that because there are angels all over the first five books of the Bible. But they didn't believe in angelic beings. But they were the power, and they had a great relationship with Rome. As a matter of fact, they served at the pleasure of Rome. You understand what I'm saying? Rome determined who the high priest was. They affirmed who the high priest was. Rome determined the power. And as long as things were pretty civil in town and there were no uprisings, nothing that would disrupt the commerce or the taxes or the peace of Rome, then they were okay in power. But if something were going to come up that would upset the Pax Romana or make Rome think that they couldn't handle their own people, then they would be replaced and displaced. So they were jealous of their power and they had a good relationship with Rome. Now there's another group of Jewish religious leaders, and they're called Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are different. The Pharisees are the ones that are out among the people. They're the ones who are teaching, interacting. They're praying before the people. They're showing off their holiness before the people. We have a lot of Scripture references in the Gospels about the Pharisees and their behavior. But as far as we're concerned right now, the Pharisees had the ear of the people, and the people would follow what the Pharisees says. The, the Sadducees were more of the administrators, and they were more connected to Rome than they were to the people. So uh, Josephus tells us, uh, the, a historian, ancient historian, says that the Sadducees, even though in power, would not confront the Pharisees because they were concerned about the goodwill of the people. Now, the Sadducees were those who run the temple change, changing tables, the, the altars and all that as well. So this was money and power. Now, here's what happens. The high priest and his mostly Sadducean group, the council, they were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles. They just went out, sent the temple guard, arrested them, and they put them in a public prison. And that's it. Gospel over. They're in prison. Period. Not. That is not it. We have one of these marvelous, miraculous acts that takes place. Even though they're persecuted, they're put in jail. While they are in jail, with the doors locked, with the guards in place, God sends an angel. Isn't that hilarious? These guys don't believe in angels. And God sends an angel to take these guys out of prison. And He takes them out of prison and He says, Now, I want you to run and hide. Is that what He says? No. He says, go back. Go back to the temple yards. Go back to the courtyard. Go back to the crowds and preach this whole gospel of life. Preach this whole message of life. Preach what you've been a witness to and a testimony to. And so, daybreak, the next morning, they're back. The crowds are there and they're preaching again. Now, the Sadducees, the high priests, they don't know what's taking place. And so they send the guard, go, go bring these guys in. It's time to interview them. When they show up, they said, they're not there. They're not there. The gates are locked. The guards have been in place all night. They're not, and then somebody comes in and says, hey, those guys you locked up, they're out preaching in the temple. Can I make just a couple of observations that I think are clear in the text? Number one, you can expect persecution. If you're going to live a life of purity, if you're going to be used by God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth, if you're going to come with a message of light, you're going to do it in a world that loves darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they are not going to be happy with you. 
at some level, and there are multiple levels of persecution, and we, can, we will see all of them as, you go, as we go through the books of Acts. There's everything from imprisonment to death. There's beating, that's flogging that we will see in this text. Uh, that, there, there are all of but for, for us, that some of the persecution we face is simply intimidation. Intimidation from people who don't like our message. Rejection. Rejection can be a form of persecution, but it is not the threat level that these guys were facing where we live. There are in other parts of the world right now, but persecution is, is, is sure. When persecution happens, what do we do? It's amazing to me how God sent the angel and he set them free, but he relied upon their obedience to go back to the temple. They persisted in the face of persecution a church grows a church can grow the foundation what is necessary for a church to grow is accomplished as we take purity seriously and we pursue it as we depend upon the holy spirit's power and as we remain persistent in the face of persecution they did not stop proclaiming the gospel there are so many churches and so many believers who are not faithful just to talk about Jesus when there's no persecution. Folks, let's talk about Jesus. I don't know what to say. What do you know? What was your experience? What passages of Scripture did the Holy Spirit use in your heart? What have you been a witness to? Can't you tell people what you've been a witness to? You can it's a great job. We, we spent six weeks studying, let's talk about Jesus, and looking at how they did it. Now, we, this, this Sunday school cycle ends this, well, actually today. <laughs> we pick up a new series uh, next, uh, in June. Next Sunday, we will not have Sunday school. Worship over in Palmetto. The Sunday after that, we will have Sunday school, but worship will again be in Palmetto. We'll, you'll get information on that. We won't let you get lost. Just... We'll make sure you know where to go. But one of the classes that we're going to have next week, I'm going to invite you to come and join with me. And we're going to sit around a table and we're going to say, I want to share the gospel with at least one person over the course of the summer. And we're going to look at how you get into a conversation, the substance of the gospel, how you can pray for that person, how you can engage them. And we're going to partner up and start praying for each other. Who's your one? Who is it that you would be willing to say, Lord, can you use me to just... I've I, I talked to too many people late in life who said, that's my one regret that I've never led anybody to the Lord. Now, I've got news for you. Not your job to save anybody. We'll get to that in just a minute in this message. But it is your job to talk to people. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? We are sent. And we all get to be those who share the gospel with the Lord Jesus, with, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ with people who desperately need them. But there is, a, there is persecution. Persecution is inevitable. They hate the light because their deeds are evil. They hate Jesus. They will hate you. And their response, when they were called, when they were called back, after they're preaching again, they're remaining persistent in the face of persecution, these guys call them back. And you've got the whole now, you've got the whole council of the Sanhedrin. You've got 70 leaders, mostly Sadducees, some Pharisees. You've got the high priest and his whole high priestly cohort. And you've got then the, uh, the, the temple guard who have laid hands on them and who brought them back. You know the, uh, 
the, the response that they, when they had brought them, verse 27, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, here's what he said. Hey, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. And yet here, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood against us, which they did, by the way. As a matter of fact, do you remember what happened in Matthew chapter 27 that's recorded when Pilate was accusing Jesus and he said, I find no fault in this man? And they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. You remember that? Matthew 27, 25. Now, they don't want it. But it's too late. They have it. But Peter and the apostles answered, and here's their answer. We must obey God rather than men. We must Obey God rather than men. You tell me not to do what God has told me to do. I'm going to obey God rather than men. This is not a government or citizenship sermon. We are commanded Romans chapter 13, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Peter to submit to kings and authorities and rulers of authority. When does that go away? When they tell you to do something God has told you to not do, or they tell you not to do something God has told you to do. This is the theme of the Christian life. What is the theme of the Christian life? I must obey God rather than men. It's a big deal. It matters. It mattered to them. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Here's, get this now. We told you to shut up. We locked you in prison. Peter says, we're not going to obey you. We're going to obey God. And he goes on to say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. They don't, they, when you're persecuted, one of the tendencies is to mitigate the message. Oh, don't be harsh. You might hurt somebody's feelings. Oh, don't be offensive. Let, let, let's, let's just say, rather than all of sin and come short of the glory of God, let's just say we all make mistakes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Rather than saying there's no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved, let's just say um, we should all be seeking after God. And just, just rather than being clear, rather than, than confronting people with the gospel, in love, with the goal of redemption, we tend to mitigate the message. Not Peter, not at all. Our God, your God, the God of our fathers, the God we made a covenant with, the God who established this temple, Our God raised Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the one we've been waiting on, and you killed him. You put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. There's the bad news. Here's the good news. God has exalted him. He is no longer dead. He lives. He is the leader. Follow him. He is the Savior. Give your lives to him. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Listen, the church grows as it pursues purity. The church grows as it rests in the power of God. The church grows as it remains persistent. In the face of persecution. Our tendency is to stop being a witness. We need to, in many cases, simply start being a witness. But now, we've got a couple of minutes. Will you, give me, will you give me about ten minutes? Because this is the best part. The church grows as it rests 
in the providence of God. The church grows as it rests in God's providence. Now, what does that mean? Here's the word providence. What does that mean? It simply means God's control of circumstances. Now, I want you to get the picture. I'm going to walk around. I want you to get the picture. You got Peter standing before the Sanhedrin, and he's with John and the other apostles who have been preaching and doing miracles, signs, and wonders. And they are standing before an elevated dais, and there is a platform, and it is not just a small group. It's more uh, structured after Rome, where you've got multiple levels and at least 70 people, probably closer to 100, with guards and people in the court. So this is not a small group. And those guys had the authority given to them by Rome to punish their own people. And when Peter said, Jesus whom you killed, Jesus who is the Savior, leader and Savior of Israel to grant us forgiveness, we're going to talk about him. We didn't originate these things. We're simply witnesses of these things. But we're going to be faithful to be a witness of these things. Those are the guys who can shut your mouth forever. They can take your life. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that when they heard this from their perspective, King James Version, they were cut to the quick. What does that mean? Uh, it's literally the word for sown in two. They were enraged, ESV. They were filled with rage. It tore them up. Here are these people who believe in the re- preach the resurrection. When we preach, there's not a resurrection. Here are the people who are blaming us for the death of Christ, even though we said, let His blood be upon us and upon our children. Here are the people who are pointing out, and they're threatening our power. And goodness knows, we're used to being obeyed. And we've told them to quit twice and every time they don't quit they just keep going as a matter of fact they fill jerusalem with their message what a mess they're making and our relationship with rome is threatened because if we can't control our own populace rome's going to send the army in someone will and we'll be replaced and they are have you ever been so mad i'm not going to ask that they were mad enough to kill them they were mad enough to put them to death. And I do not know, the Bible does not tell us the emotion. I know their emotions. Their emo- they were seeing red. If they'd have had a rock, if they'd have had a stick, they were enraged. And I don't know if Peter's in, I don't know if he was standing there peaceful and serene with a little light going off of his face. I don't know. I, I don't know if he was just standing there bold or if he emotion. You know, Peter was a pretty emotional guy. I would think that his emotions were being raised up as well, emotionally, to, to I'm going to stand firm. If you come at me, I'm just going to stand firm. I'm just, I don't know what his response was. But I know that they were in the very real danger of having their life taken away from them. And then Gamaliel stands up. And he says, uh, guys, take them out of the room for a few minutes and let's talk. Now, when Gamaliel stands up, we find out a few things about him. Number one, he's a Pharisee. More Sadducees than Pharisees in this group. But the Pharisees had the ear of the people. And Gamaliel wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the Pharisees. He was a rabbi. But Gamaliel wasn't just a rabbi. He is called a rabbon. It is a title given to one teacher in all of Jerusalem at any given time. And it is the master teacher. He is scholarly. He was even given a title. 
He was given a nickname. His nickname was the beauty of the law. He was Hillel's grandson. There are two major schools of theology in Phariseeism, in ancient Jerusalem, Jewishness. And that was Hillel and Shimei. Hillel, the more liberal, Shimei, the more conservative. And he had established a whole school. This man had their ear. He, had the, he was the right man. And he was in the right place. And he was there at the right time. He was not a follower of Christ. And he stands up and he says, Now listen, we've had two rebellions recently. You guys, you, know, you, need, to, you need to get control of your fear. And you need to get control of your fury. You need to not act out of an emotional response. You need to use your heads. This stuff matters. So take a deep breath. And remember, this is not the first time something like this has happened. They just did it. Now, he died and his followers, they went away. Jews did it. This was back in 6 AD. We have a historical record of Judas. And he had thousands of followers and yet he was conquered and his followers were scattered. And if this is just another one of those, then it's just going to go away and you don't have to worry about it. But if it's not one of those, if there's something to this, you need to be careful because you may even be acting against God. Now, God in the circumstances. The right man in the right place at the right time. The one that they would listen to. Maybe if a Sadducee had stood up, he would have probably said, let's just go ahead and kill him. But God divinely worked circumstances in order that the gospel could continue to be proclaimed in this circumstance, in this setting, at this time. Well, their anger was such they couldn't just turn it off. And so they had them flogged. They took them out and they beat them and they let them go. And when they beat them and they let them go, the disciples, what did they do? They rejoiced. And they went back to preaching again. Are you challenged by that? Are you convicted by that? Are you encouraged by that? Are you motivated by that? Let me tell you something. We need to pursue purity, but we can be as pure as, as yielded to the Holy Spirit as anybody ever has been. We need to depend upon the Spirit's power, and we can be completely not self-sufficient, but Holy Spirit-sufficient, walking in obedience to Him. We can be persecuted, and we will be at some level, and remain persistent in our persecution, but none of that matters if God doesn't move. Now, it matters if we prevent God from moving, or if we prevent God from moving and working in us. And all of that to say is that we have a providential God who works in times and seasons according to His plan, and that's why more important than ever, it is that we need to approach the throne of grace to know Him and to pray and to beseech Him that He will move in our time. The first prayer that you have when you're dealing with evangelism and sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for the lost. Praying that God will convict, that God will draw, that God will grant repentance, that God will regenerate and bring a new heart. Because only God saves. Our job is to be faithful 
in obedience. Years ago, I was pastoring the deaf church. I'll quit just a second. And we were desperate to grow. I, I really wanted to be used by God to reach all the deaf in this city. And I said, let's just make a goal. Let's make a goal that we'll have 25 new professions of faith in the next year. And this was just some sort of random thing. I, we, we, we need to see 25 people get saved this year. Let's just make that our goal. And we did. We put it on a piece of paper and a poster. We printed it. We're going we're gonna to make it our goal that, that 25 people get saved this year. I got, and, and I was called out on it by a couple of guys, but I'm this stubborn and frequently wrong. <laughs> I said, nope, we're going to do that. We can do that. We can do this if it kills us. And here's what I got to tell you. You can't do it even if it kills you. Because you don't save. And so I became convicted and had to go and apologize to the church. And said, let's change this. Rather than saying, let's have 25 people saved. Let's make some goals about what we can control. Let's make a goal to share the gospel with 125 people this year. And pray that God will save all of them. You understand that our measure of obedience, our measure of success is obedience. That's the criteria. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me on this? Here's the best news about evangelism. We have a God. Same God they had. Who still works today. We have a God who's given us His Word and preserved it. We have a God who's given us the opportunity to be witnesses of these things. And He moves and He works circumstances. And He opens doors that no man can shut. And he breaks hearts that you think are so hard they'll never be broken. And he moves and works in marvelous ways according to the counsel of his own divine will. And he is completely trustworthy. And so we don't have to worry. And we don't have to fret. And we don't have to spend sleepless nights twisting to and fro in our bed. We've got a providential God who is sovereign and he works. And we can rest in him. Good news, right? Good news, good news. I'm grateful for the privilege that God has given to us. For the opportunities that He is opening for us. Such a good God. So gracious. So let's make sure that we are pursuing purity. That we're resting in His power. Let's make sure that we continue to persevere. Even in persecution. That we persevere when it gets hard. But let's never think this is our plan. This is our work. This is God's work in us and through us. Amen? Isn't God good? So let's sing a song. Let's close now with a song that celebrates the death of Christ upon the cross and His redemptive work in our lives. Father, thank You for salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name. Help us to be bold as these were bold. Help us to people of prayer as these were people of prayer help us to see your power on display as they did that many might come to know you and that your name might be glorified through us in your name i pray amen